in a country in which independent journalism struggles, Heath Post was a really good example of an independent newspaper that tried really hard to maintain its independence and high standards of quality, objective, hard-hitting journalism. This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner, the Institute's media manager, and the voice you just heard is Lily Bivings, a master's candidate at the Harriman Institute and a contributing editor at the KU Independent. If you listened to the last two episodes, you'll know that The Independent arose from the rubble of another English-language newspaper in Ukraine, the KU Post, which we'll talk a lot about in my interview with Lily today. Lily was our guest interviewer for the last two episodes. If you missed her conversations with the KU Independent's editor-in-chief, Olga Rudenko, and deputy chief editor, Toma Istomina, you should definitely go back and listen. They provide very intimate glimpses into what it's like to cover a war unfolding in your own country. In today's conversation, Lily gives more context about the Kyiv Independent, about being a journalist in Ukraine before the war, and about the Kyiv Post, where she worked for seven months last year, first as a reporter and then interim business editor. This was shortly before the paper imploded. And what was the state of journalism at large in Ukraine at that time? How safe is it to be a journalist in Ukraine? And It's still relatively unsafe to be a journalist in Ukraine. It depends on what you're covering, of course. Ukrainian journalists who are publishing in Ukrainian or in Russian are more at risk than Kiev Post journalists were. But, um, but of course, Kiev Post journalists were, were always at risk as well. I mean, in Ukraine, it's they have a, a culture of a free press and a free and independent media. Um, it's a struggling industry. It's always had a lot of difficulty surviving because it, it has a lot of threats to its survival. And of course, they have an oligarchic system of media in Ukraine where, you know, wealthy business owners own the media companies. And that's always an issue. You mentioned in the previous episode that Zelensky's administration was not so friendly to journalism. Can you talk about that? Actually, while I was a business reporter, Zelensky's big construction program was in full swing. Zelensky wanted to be remembered, and I quote, as the president who built good roads in Ukraine, which of course is a big deal because as a result of corruption and, and lack of development, the roads have historically been really bad. And that's always been this kind of visible sign of corruption and, and, and lack of development in Ukraine. And so he had this huge presidential program uh, that he started called Big Construction that was extremely ambitious in rebuilding and building new roads and bridges and infrastructure in Ukraine. The Kyiv Post followed that story closely. And there were signs that the same types of corruption that got in the way of infrastructure projects in the past were happening in this project too. Zelensky was trying to really rush the process because he was really interested in building as many roads as he possibly could, as fast as he possibly could, at the expense of transparency, at the expense of reforms that had been put in place in 2014. These are anti-corruption reforms put in place after Ukraine's revolution of dignity, commonly known as Euromaidan. Just some context about Zelensky here. 
He was a comedic actor best known for a TV series called Servant of the People, where he played a high school history teacher who was elected president of Ukraine. And then, of course, he actually ran for the presidency in 2019 on a pro-reform, anti-corruption platform, but very quickly fell into the same trap as all of his predecessors and started rolling back on a lot of the reforms he'd championed. He fired a reformist prime minister and cabinet, dismissed a prosecutor general who'd been working to weed out corruption in Ukraine's notoriously corrupt prosecution service, and replaced him with a lawmaker from his own party who turned a blind eye to corruption. The Q Post followed all this backsliding very closely, and politicians were upset. There were lawsuits. There were grumblings among the political establishment that our coverage was a nuisance. People didn't want to talk to the Keep Post because they knew that you were going to perhaps expose the truth or something. The big thing was the general, Zelensky's general prosecutor, who was highly criticized for not going after corruption and about whom we wrote a couple stories, was openly very unhappy with Keep Post's coverage of her. Opened criminal proceedings against Keep Post's owner. This is the same prosecutor general I just told you about. And the owner is one of Ukraine's wealthiest oligarchs, a real estate magnate named Adnan Kivan. The same Adnan Kivan who would go on to fire the Post's entire staff in November 2021. Can you tell me a bit about him and what his interaction with the paper's staff was like while you were working there? While I was working at Kiev Post, Adnan Kivan's interaction with the staff was very minimal. I never saw him personally. I only heard him mentioned a couple of times. It it's really seemed like he was mostly in the background. I remember hearing that when he bought the paper three years prior to me working there, and on the first phone call, he told the journalist that sometimes silence is golden, which of course is a crazy thing to tell a room full of journalists. So there was already like a huge red flag as soon as he bought the paper, but it seemed like he stayed out of it for the most part. A quick contextual pause here. Adnan Kivan is originally from Syria. He moved to the Soviet Union to study in the 1980s. And after the Union collapsed, bought property in the right places at the right time, and managed to become very wealthy very fast. And so while you were working there, was there any foreshadowing of what was to come? I don't think so. It's a newsroom, so there's always drama. You don't necessarily think it's a sign of something to come, like everybody getting fired. What finally led to the implosion of the KU Post as you knew it? So what happened was, in October of 2021, one morning, this Facebook post appears out of nowhere from the woman who is Adnan Kivan's PR person, saying that she is now the new editor-in-chief of the Ukrainian language, Kiev Post. Was there a Ukrainian language? Not yet. And they kind of were developing this idea that they would side by side have a Ukrainian language. Kiev Post. And I think this goes hand in hand with Anand Kivan, the owner of Wanting Prestige, was that he realized, oh, I need to have the coverage be in Ukrainian so that I can have more of a, a share of 
the market. And so one day this Facebook post appears, this woman saying she is now the new editor-in-chief of the Ukrainian language side of the Kyiv Post, and that she's hiring a staff of like 30 people. No one in the newsroom had been informed of this decision. So of course, everyone freaks out because Adnan Kivon had unilaterally put someone that was faithful to him in a very important position, an editor-in-chief position. And for journalists who care a lot about independent journalism, that's unacceptable. There was a huge uproar among the editorial staff. They spoke to him and said, you can't just do that. He didn't really understand. But they thought that they had sorted it out. Anand Kivan had presumably agreed to put out an application for a Ukrainian language Kiev Post editor-in-chief. This woman took her Facebook post down. And then within a week or so, I guess he had a change of heart. Woke up that morning and decided to fire everybody. The official reason was that Kivan wanted to restructure the paper and was suspending its operations so he could do so. But the editorial staff speculates that the government's dissatisfaction with the Q Post coverage and the editorial staff's refusal to give up its editorial independence when Kivan tried to create the Ukrainian language arm of the paper were the likely motivations. And then, of course, when there was this major international backlash because he himself didn't even realize how important the Kyiv Post was to a pretty large international audience. Officials from high up in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine expressed their shock. Kyiv Post was this institution, and no one thought it could be attacked like this. It had been around for 26 years. Yeah. And so I think when he saw this reaction, he was like, what did I do? And he, he kind of invited everyone to come back within like a few days. And that's when they had already decided, like, we can't work with you anymore, you know, so they refused. So very quickly, the staff decided to start the KU Independent. And what was the process for that? I, I remember the, the day that everyone was fired, there was this atmosphere in all my conversations with people that it was just over. And people started thinking of what they would do next. They interviewed for other jobs. But then very quickly, it became very clear to them that they couldn't just all walk away. The reaction to the news of everyone getting fired was so overwhelming that they themselves hadn't realized how much support they actually had and how many people relied on them as a reliable source of news in Ukraine. How big was the staff when he fired everyone? Well, total, around 50 with journalists around 20-something. Editorial staff. So out of those 20 journalists and editors, how many went on to found the KU Independent? There was not a single journalist or editor that went somewhere else. Lily was finishing up her first semester at Columbia when this happened, but she started helping out her former colleagues remotely by editing the daily newsletter and soon became a contributing editor. And so what was the vision for the Independent? First and foremost, the idea for the Kiev Independent is that it would not have a rich business owner that it would not be owned by an oligarch, that it would be owned by its subscribers or its listeners, readers, um, that it would be truly independent. And how is it funded? So right now it gets funding from uh, different funding sources, like National Endowment for Democracy. But mostly we have several thousand patrons on Patreon, and it brings in about $70,000 a month. And then we've raised over $2 million in GoFundMe. It's really good for a, a Ukrainian media startup. So then, <laughs> in the midst of all this, 
there were troops building up on the Ukrainian border, Russian troops, and much of your coverage, as we learned from Olga and Toma in the last episode, much of your coverage was those tensions and security issues, but no one actually thought the war would happen. Right. What's funny is that the initial troop buildup, nobody seems to remember. The initial troop buildup happened in April of 2021. We were covering it, but no one cared, like inside and outside of Ukraine. I remember we had several articles that were like, okay, there are like all of a sudden tens of thousands of new troops on the border with Ukraine and Russia. It was a moment we were covering a lot, but it it didn't feel tense. Right, because the troops then retreated and then they came back. Yeah, and it was seen as maybe connected to Nord Stream 2. Maybe this is an intimidation tactic because the West is wavering on Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 was a gas pipeline project that would transport Russian natural gas directly to Germany via the Baltic Sea. And even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it was very controversial because it would make Europe even more dependent on Russian gas than it already was. Of course, since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, the project has been put on hold entirely. So, as Lily was saying, the KU Independent was covering the building tensions, but it wasn't until December that things started to look very serious. That's when U.S. intelligence started issuing warnings that an invasion was imminent. The United States started saying, this is going to happen. And on February 24th, fated. And I think it was, it was shocking. It, it's weird. It's one of those things. It's, it was not surprising when you think about if you know Russia and you know the history, you're like, it's not surprising at all. But it was shocking. And I think literally within hours of the invasion starting, the Kiev independence readership just like skyrocketed. I mean, the, the page visits on the website all of a sudden just like multiplied. And the site crashed. The site crashed. And the KU Independent, this fresh media startup, suddenly became insanely popular. Way more popular than the KU Post ever had been. Just to, you know, compare numbers, like Kiev Post has a couple hundred thousand not even followers on Twitter, and we have over two million now. And, like, people who I didn't even think were interested at all in anything that was going on in the world have reached out to me and say, I follow Kiev Independent and I read their news all day long. Lily can think of a few reasons for this. For one, there's the cool origin story. Banding together, ditching the oligarch, and starting a successful media startup where the editors in command and most of the editorial staff are all Ukrainian. That's a big deal. No Westerner running the place. At the Q Post, there was Brian Bonner, an editor from the U.S. running a newsroom comprised of mostly Ukrainians. He's an American guy. He's like very old school journalist. And so they all learned from him, which I think also like the key independent success is also a testament to Brian imparting good wisdom on those who, who came up as journalists with him. But Bonner was already planning to retire when the post imploded. And the key independent is run by a much younger group of editors, which gave the new publication a fresh outlook. So there was first that wave that I think really helped the key independent gain in popularity and get noticed and then the invasion started and that was like the second wave of Kiev independence because suddenly um, it was everywhere yeah 
you know, I think there's also a little bit to it that's sort of inexplicable because it's not like we're, we're doing a very standard thing where we're just putting out the news and we don't have a lot of money. So it's not like we're doing it in some super fancy way. There's just something about the way that we do it that stuck. And the post still exists. So when the invasion started, the Kiev post said it was temporarily suspending operations in Kiev. But they said that they would be continuing to publish news on social media and online. So they still put out some things. But, but they, they don't have reporters on the ground covering the war? No. Not as far as we're concerned. And what's your access? Like, I've been hearing a lot of stories about how secretive the Ukrainian government is right now. They have these, like, press breweries where reporters are going, and that's the news they get, and that that's all. No one knows how many casualties. How has that been for your reporters? Are you getting more access because you have Ukrainian reporters? And are you being instructed? What have been the challenges, and how have you overcome them? So I think... Kiev Independent definitely sees itself as one of the many soldiers in the information war. And part of fighting that information war in this environment is following some of the instructions that the government has put out about reporting on certain information, right? So obviously we're not going to get the casualty numbers. No one's getting those. They're keeping a tight lid on that. And we're not going after trying to get those numbers because we know that it's very important that those numbers right now remain concealed. To boost morale. Exactly. It's all about morale boosting. And so it's an unsaid thing. It's not like we've had this conversation where we're like, oh, we're propagandists. We're in this information war. It's kind of just like, well, of course we don't want to do anything that would hurt Ukrainian soldiers' morale. It's such an interesting period mm -hmm. for journalism. Now some of your own staff is in the territorial defense. Journalists being objective has had to go out the window for this greater cause. How are people in the newsroom feeling about that? I think everyone feels really proud and honored to have the opportunity to be part of the fight against Russia. That being said, if there's some sort of critical thing that comes out about the government, it's not like we're going to hide that. If a politician is doing something bad, it needs to be reported on. So are you guys still trying to find out what's happening in government? Casualty numbers aside? I think it's a little hard right now. There's nothing really going on in government except for the war efforts. Well, um, there are probably competing narratives and factions and desires. You know, there have been some grumblings of that. Some rivalries going on within the government of, of who's to blame for what. I think our reporters are really trying to focus on the damage that this has caused to Ukrainian people and civilians. But I will say that one thing I've observed about Ukraine is like, Ukrainians will like rally behind someone, like a politician or, or a person or something, to get them elected. And then the day they're elected, they turn around and start criticizing them and, and uncovering shady things they've done. And I think the same thing will happen in Ukraine. Everybody's like rah-rah behind the president and the government, you know, everyone's trying to just do their part to like win. And the day it's over, everyone's back on the chopping block. So you're not worried about this having consequences for Ukrainian no. journalism in the future? No. I mean, I'm sure there will be some of that, and I'm sure that the government will be expecting some of that. And there might be some subconscious behavior where people are not exposing or going after certain things, maybe, because they're afraid that they don't want to harm Ukraine. But that's not how Ukrainians have been historically. That's not, we've already had some stories in Kiev Independent or in other Ukrainian newspapers that have been critical of certain Ukrainian politicians. 
especially the ones who were extremely corrupt before this and are now trying to pretend like they're patriots. Zelensky is also an interesting figure because a lot of people were unsatisfied with him. I think, you know, most people thought Zelensky was just kind of weak on everything. The mainstream opinion about Zelensky was that he was very sensitive. So he didn't like to be criticized. He didn't like bad media coverage of him. He didn't like it when his staff were critical. And there were also oligarch interests behind him. Yeah, there was, you know, Kolomoisky, who is like one of the most famous oligarchs in Ukraine because of the, he was one of the former owners of Privat Bank, which was nationalized in 2015. He was one of Zelensky's backers. But it was always really hard to tell how deep their relationship went. I think people were disappointed in Zelensky for not going after oligarchs as much as they maybe thought he would or should. And to what extent was it surprising for you and your friends and colleagues when he emerged as this national hero and refused to leave Ukraine and has used his skills as an orator to really take the helm? You know, everyone was surprised because it was Zelensky. However, I get the sense, this is my personal feeling, this is what I gather from my conversations with people, is that Ukrainians love their home and their land and their country so much that it's not surprising ultimately that any Ukrainian made the decision that Zelensky did. And I'm curious now for our final question, what you think about U.S. coverage of the war? Yeah, so historically, Western media coverage of Ukraine has been abysmal. Partly because the Western world just didn't know anything about Ukraine. Um, and it was relying on information sources that were, that leaned Russian information sources. Whether or not that were, were Westerners who had spent time in Russia or had studied Russian history or followed events in Russia, their perspective was looking at Ukraine through the Russian perspective a lot of the time. So what did that mean? What was the yeah. Russian perspective that was getting translated to us? The, the main two narratives about Ukraine were that Ukraine was extremely divided, that there was this contingent of pro-Western Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians that lived mostly in the center of the East, and then there were the Russian-speaking pro-Russian Ukrainians that lived in the East, and they were at odds with each other and they couldn't agree, which is, you know, was a big one and was was wrong. It was not representative of the realities of, of U- Ukrainian political life. And if you lived in Ukraine, you understood that. If you studied Ukraine, you understood that. Well, what were the realities in that sense? Well, it's much more complicated than that. There were people in eastern Ukraine who are Ukrainian-speaking, who support free, independent Ukraine, and there's people in central Ukraine who support Putin. But for the most part, vast majorities of Ukrainians, regardless of the language they spoke, supported an independent, free, sovereign Ukraine. The other media representation of Ukraine was that there were far-right groups everywhere and neo-Nazis and that that was a huge problem in Ukraine even though if you look at it statistically that's not true. Far-right groups represent about one percent politically like in politically elected positions. In other parts of Europe and the United States that is certainly not the case. It's much higher than one percent you know. So these groups like really don't represent a political force in Ukraine but the media kept representing them that way. In mid-May, 
Not long after Lily and I spoke, the New York Times published an op-ed in response to the Senate's passing of $40 billion aid package to Ukraine. The editors urged the Biden administration to set clear goals for its continued involvement in the war. A decisive military victory for Ukraine over Russia, in which Ukraine regains all the territory Russia has seized since 2014, is not a realistic goal, the New York Times editors wrote. The KU Independent quickly came back with an op-ed in response. Ukrainian society will never agree to any concessions. Those who don't understand this simple fact don't understand Ukraine at all and perhaps shouldn't share their uneducated speculations in one of the world's leading media publications. The Kyiv Independent editors wrote, Ukraine is fighting this war on behalf of the free world to make sure it remains free. The free world must at least try to match the Ukrainians' bravery, they concluded. If you want to support the people of Ukraine, please consider donating to razomforukraine.org. That's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine.org. It was founded in 2014 in the wake of Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity by Dora Komiak, who's on the Harriman Institute's National Advisory Council. Razom has been working directly with volunteers in Ukraine to provide emergency relief where it's needed the most. Thank you for listening to Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Mashi Densova-Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me with editorial help from Jordan Waller. A huge thank you to Lily Bivings for making this series on the KU Independent possible, and to Marko Andrejcik and Nathan Schiller for their feedback on the episode. The music in this episode was composed by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in view, and as always, we're thinking about him and wishing him safety. The cover art for the podcast is by Victoria Tentler Krilov. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. <laughs>